Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Gilbert Gottfried died last month. He was 67. To millennials of a certain age, he was an iconic voice actor. Iago in Aladdin, Krang subprime in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the duck from the Aflac commercials. He was also a beloved boundary-pushing stand-up comic. When he'd hit the stage, he'd become a character. He'd squint his eyes, scream at the top of his lungs, and tell jokes that, frankly, only Gilbert Gottfried could get away with. When I talked to Gottfried in 2017, he was the subject of an excellent documentary that had just come out called Gilbert. The film showed Gottfried for who he really was, a complex guy who, of course, doesn't shout all the time, who loves his family, who walks to the end of the block to get paper towels, that kind of stuff. The director, Neil Berkeley, tags along with Gottfried to gigs, he goes to his house, he interviews his wife, his children, and what it shows you is a portrait of a brilliant, complex comedian. A comedian whose work has gotten him into trouble plenty of times. Here's a little bit from the documentary towards the beginning. Quite often I look at my life as a Twilight Zone episode, like those episodes where a guy wakes up and he's in this totally different world, totally different life. I wake up and I go, what are these other clothes hanging here? And what's this weird apartment where the furniture matches? And they go, why, you're married, sir. <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Ah, uh, thank you. I feel like there are about 10 minutes in this film dedicated specifically uh, to your history of defending your personal life, anything besides your stage character from being seen. Uh, I guess the first question is, why was that? Why, why didn't you want to have a public life besides performing? Well, the, there's, um, there, there's one part of the film, and it's called Gilbert. <laughs> um, it's that, and and I I've always th- I always think this like that scene in um, Wizard of Oz where it's like don't look at that man behind the curtain and and that's the way I I always felt with my life as far as a performer goes I feel like oh I I don't want them to see that guy behind the curtain it might kill anything they like about me. Were you worried that that the real you was disappointing? Uh yeah. And um I I I mean it's it's just like I remember for years after I I do a set and sometimes I do a great set and you know I get a lot of laughs and everything and I'd be scared to go up and you know try to talk to women in the bar or something cuz I thought I'll I'll just wind up killing everything I created up there. Did you ever see that episode of the Larry Sanders show where Bobcat Goldthwait is going to take over the show? Uh, no. <laughs> what happens in this episode is 
Bob Goldthwaite, who, uh, of course, is was famous as particularly at the time for his kind of screaming and caterwauling on stage, takes over the Larry Sanders show from Larry Sanders, and he, he does it in his real voice. And the executives are like, wait a minute, we hired Bobcat Goldthwaite, the guy who yells in the Police Academy movies. And the tension of this episode is Bob wanting to have his own real-life human being persona and the network wanting his uh, screaming uh, weirdo persona, which, to be fair, is very funny. Uh, me, I I just kind of felt, I always felt safe in character. This movie is like one of the few times you see me like uh, break character. And, and it's funny, I've been doing it so long. Either Either one of my characters seems natural to me now. What kind of comedy did you do when you started out? You started out as a teenager doing open mics before there, basically before there were comedy clubs. Oh, yeah. I I was one of those kids that watch way too much TV and started after a while. I used to draw pictures. I used to think of being a, a cartoonist. And then I started to joke around and like I'd watch these old actors and the old movies they show on TV and I do imitations of them. And then I started getting more and more interested in show business. And uh, my sister, Arlene, um, had a friend who told her, you know, there's some club, and I don't remember the name of it, uh, that you could just go there and write your name down on the list. And when they get to your name, they just call, you know, announce it, and you go up. And you do something. I mean, no money, of course. And I was 15 years old and made the trek from Brooklyn to Manhattan and uh, did it. And I, I, I've always said that uh, what I had on my side was stupidity. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now I... I it. It it makes me cringe to imagine what was going on in my parents' heads. Uh, it it's like uh, to say you were going to make it in show business. That's like saying, "Well, I'm going to be an astronaut." Uh, it it was really uh, a a strange because now that I'm older, I see things in a more logical sense. So. When people say to me, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm thinking of going into show business or or how would I feel about my kids going into show business? And I feel like I'd be fine with my kids going into show business if they started out as rich international superstars <laughs> and never had a second of rejection. Then I'd be fine with it. Did you like? But, did you believe when you were fifteen years old that it was going to work? Uh yeah. It's it's like I said. It was the stupidity level. I I I would do it, and I sometimes I'd bomb horribly. A lot of times I'd bomb horribly, and 
but I just kept doing it. Yeah. I feel like I talk to a lot of stand-ups who tell me that they had a great first set and then they bombed for six months thereafter, but they remembered what that first set was like. And, and I often think, like, how many comedians we've lost because they didn't have, their first set wasn't good. <laughs> you know, oh, yes. their second set would have been the good one. Yes. And and that was one of those things I, uh, one of those lessons I learned that sometimes you go up and you'll do a powerhouse set and you think, well, that's it. I'm great. And then like the next night you go up and you can't buy a laugh from the crowd. And uh, so that's the, that's the first thing. I, I, I think Steve Martin once said, um, it's it's easy to be great. It's hard to be good. Was it easy for you to look at your own past in the film? Uh no. Um it it's funny how it happened. Um the the filmmaker, Neil Berkeley, he he approached me and said, I've always dreamt of doing a Gilbert Gottfried documentary and uh and I said, well, you should set your dreams a lot higher than that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then he just started following me around. And, and me, I, I didn't have the guts to say, get away from me. So he would follow me. He'd show up at my house and I'd be walking around my bathrobe, ironing a shirt and and then he started following me to clubs I was booked at, and it made me very uncomfortable. And I've seen the film about four or five times, and 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 I I cringe while I'm watching the film because I'm I'm fine if I'm in a sitcom as Joe the Plumber, but uh, me as myself, I I really it it's painful to look at. And I, I feel like what hell must be is that you die and you're forced to watch your life on a big screen. Why do you think that is? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think watching your life could be a, a painful and embarrassing experience. Well, when you start delving in the past and just seeing yourself and 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 what was happening, I mean, by now... I'm used to seeing myself on screen. I'm used to hearing myself. But now it was kind of like when people hear their voice on an answering machine or whatever, and they'll go, that that doesn't sound like me. That's not the way I talk. I mean, what and of that? Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, no. So I, I was watching myself and going, no, no, I don't I don't look like that. I don't sound that way. Even more from my conversation with Gilbert Gottfried after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we're listening back to my conversation with the late stand-up comedian and actor Gilbert Gottfried. He died last month. When I talked with him in 2017, he was the subject of an excellent documentary called Gilbert, which profiled his life and work. Let's get back into our conversation. One of the themes in this movie is 
the way that your relationship with your wife and children has changed you rather unexpectedly as a, you know, well into middle age. How did you meet your wife? Uh, she used to be in the music business where, you know, she was one of those that try to get songs onto the radio. And uh, somebody had invited me to a Grammy party and that uh, circle in the square, I think it was. And, you know, I, I went to that because I knew there'd be free food. And, uh, and so I met her there. And now I have, yeah, I have two kids, two young kids. It's very weird. And I think this is with everyone. I don't think it's till you have kids that you have any idea of who your parents were. It's like your parents growing up, they're two people who they're kind of out of it and they just get in your way and they don't understand anything. And then when you have kids, it's like all of a sudden a light goes on in your head and you go, oh, oh, okay, okay, now I see what they were doing all those years. Trying to protect you? Uh, yeah, trying to protect you, trying to get you uh, ready for the world. Like, like I know, you know, my father would get angry with me and... And then, you know, I started to understand it years later. And I think, you know, he just wanted me to be ready for the world. And he used to say to me, uh, he said to me a number of times, he said, you know, your parents aren't going to be with you forever. Which is uh, one of those things that you can't conceive of back then. It's kind of a scary thing to hear from your parent. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's uh, a you know a jolt of reality. Did it change the way that you thought about your relationship with him? Uh, I well, it was it was kind of what's becoming at times a very tense relationship. But you know, and and once again, like after he died, I started rethinking everything about him, and and especially when I had kids, and I thought, oh. He was just basically wanted me to be ready for the world. Are you comfortable with the rejection that comes with show business? Uh, after a while, it, you just realize it's part of it, you know, and 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 not only is it is it part of a rejection is always part of it because it, it's it's funny. It's like, you know. You'll hear stories like uh, of these movies where the lead role, these legendary actors, all wanted it, and only one person could get it. And you're thinking, boy, these are legendary award-winning actors, and they're still being rejected. It's kind of like, I think, uh, well, every every actor wanted to be... Uh, Vito Corleone and The Godfather, and they were being turned down left and right. I think both Dustin Hoffman and Robert Duvall, among a bunch of other stars, wanted to be Hannibal Lecter. 
but only one person gets it, and you got to say, oh, you know, sorry, Dustin and Bob. <laughs> yeah, we don't want you. I want to play another clip from the documentary Gilbert, which is about my guest Gilbert Gottfried. Um, and his wife, uh, Dara, is a big part of this. And in this scene, she is going through a sort of memories file in their apartment. And she's talking about uh, what was probably one of the toughest parts of your career, Gilbert, which was um, when you got fired from the comedian's dream job of the century, which was being the voice of the Aflac duck. Oh, wow. These are the tweets that got him fired from Aflac. I guess I, guess I printed them. We took them down. We, we deleted them from Twitter, and I guess I found them somewhere online, and I printed them just to have. Japan is really advanced. They don't go to the beach. The beach comes to them. That's it? Just that No. One. I was talking to my Japanese real estate agent. I said, is there a school in the area? She said, not now, but just wait. What do Japanese Jews like to eat? Hebrew national tsunami. I mean, it's so cheesy, you know? You didn't mean anything wrong. You didn't mean anything bad. It's funny. I was I was watching that part of the documentary and, and thinking back uh, to when all of that went down. And it was, you know, it was genuinely national news. And I wonder how the many years that have passed since all of that went down have changed the way that you've thought about that situation? Well, my my favorite tweet that somebody sent me when that happened was, Affleck fires Gilbert Gottfried after discovering he's a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was really it in a nutshell. And, I mean, I remember George Carlin one time said, it's the duty of a comedian to find out where the line is drawn and deliberately cross over it. In the movie, your wife said that when the Aflac stuff went down, you cried over it. Is that true? I I don't know if I cried or if it was... I remember I was... Uh, I I... First of all, I didn't understand the internet at all then. And I thought this was the world. This was the entire world telling me they hated me. And I mean, one of those things that I started to realize later on is it's that old saying, as long as they're talking about you, because when they'd say, our top story tonight, Gilbert Gottfried's career is over. If your career is over, you're not the top story. If your career's over, you could save a building of uh, babies in a burning building, and they won't bother putting you in the paper or mentioning you on TV or putting you on the Internet. It's when your name still means something to people, that's when our top story, his career, is over. Also, I remember 
people, I'd go on these shows and the interviewers would act like, you know, this is an important story, like, like I'm the dictator of a country or something, or I'm the biggest criminal, and I'm someone who's putting poison in baby food or something. And I remember one in particular, there was this woman who was just, wouldn't crack a smile and was very confrontational about the whole thing. And I gave her an example of a bad taste joke, and I said it, and she, like, turned her face and covered her mouth and was laughing. And I thought, and right then and there is is the whole interview. It's like she knows the joke she heard she's not supposed to laugh at, but she still wants to laugh at. One of the things that I think is magical about your jokes about the most horrible things is, you know, you're up there and uh, your uh, stage persona isn't quite as as intense as it was 25 years ago um, because, you know, you've been doing this a long time and you're a 62-year-old man, but... You know, you're still doing Gilbert Gottfried up there. It's unmistakable. Yeah. You know, you're still squinting and yelling. And um, you're talking about something horrifying often. You know, whether it's, you know, there's a moment in the movie where your w- wife says, well, I mean, I really love my husband, but maybe if you didn't do that one incest joke. <laughs> <laughs> but... The thing that I love about these jokes and, you know, even those jokes about the tsunami is they're so silly. And it's just this idea of, well, what what if we took the worst? It, it sort of built into it is this acknowledgement we are talking about the worst thing in the world. Um, and there's no way to get comfort all we can do is acknowledge that it's the worst thing in the world and maybe just give a, a half an ounce of of warmth just a tiniest bit of comfort you know well it's it's like i i love the term too soon because that to me is like where is there an office and a guy ha- is behind the desk going, okay, on this date, it'll be okay to make a joke about this. And to me, I could make an argument that I'm more sensitive by doing it right while it's happening than people who do it later on. Like, you could make all the jokes you want about the Titanic and no one's going to be offended by it. And I feel like, in a way, that's more offensive then. Because at least when you watch me, and I'm doing a joke about something that is currently in the news, and the the audience will, like, you know, cover their face, you know, because they don't want to laugh. 
and they go, oh, this is horrible. So they're acknowledging that it's horrible. When you do a joke about the Titanic or something like that, you're saying, oh, you know, those people, they're dead. Their grandkids are dead. The hell with them. The hell with all the people who died on the Titanic. We waited enough years, so we don't care. It's not a tragedy anymore. We'll finish my conversation with the late Gilbert Gottfried in just a minute. After the break, we'll hear some clean, family-friendly humor from Gilbert, a joke about maple syrup. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thank you so much to everyone who participated in this year's Max Fun Drive. If you're a member who wants to purchase additional patches, our annual shop is now live. The proceeds for this year's sale will be going to Trans Lifeline. Anytime is a good time to donate to Trans Lifeline, but this year it feels particularly important. Trans Lifeline is a nonprofit for the trans community by the trans community. We're grateful that with your support, we'll be able to help Trans Lifeline connect trans folks to the support and resources they need to survive and thrive. The sale will run until Friday, May 20th. Folks at the $10 monthly level and above will have access to all of the patches from the drive. We also have a special network patch starring Nutsy that all members can purchase. For more information on Trans Lifeline, visit translifeline.org. And for more information on the patches, head to MaximumFun.org slash patch sale. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're replaying my 2017 conversation with the late comedian Gilbert Gottfried. Let's get back into our conversation. I want to play another clip from Gilbert, the documentary about my guest Gilbert Gottfried. And uh, this is a, this is another one with your wife looking through files. I can understand why you would cringe. I can imagine cringing at my wife looking through my history and uh, <laughs> discussing it on screen. Yeah. <laughs> my wife loves me very much, just as yours does you. But uh, I feel like there's nowhere that can go but wrong. Um, but anyway, in this clip, she has pulled out kind of a classic thing, which is like a file of, you know, it's like the love letters file that she's kept from her <laughs> 20 years with you. Let's take a listen. First anniversary, February 3rd, 2008. Dara, warmly thinking of you and hoping this will be a happy celebration of our your anniversary. Happiness always. Go f*** yourself, Gilbert. <laughs> I haven't seen these in a long time. For you on Valentine's Day, Dara, go f- yourself 500 times. <laughs> this comes straight from the, this comes straight from the heart. <laughs> <laughs> That's me being sentimental. <laughs> Was it hard for you to? have the kind of relationship with your wife that, and I, Gilbert, I want to be clear that I ask this as someone who is also in a loving marriage who has struggled with this his entire life. So it's not accusatory. But was it hard for you to be in this relationship with your wife where you have to have real intimate emotional engagement 
and your natural instinct is to jokingly write go f- yourself yeah <laughs> oh it it definitely is a challenge that way because it really is where my personality would always always leads to a go f- yourself and uh, and once and there too if if she had written on the internet uh, my husband tells me to go f- myself, then it would be an outrage through the world of people saying, how could you stay with this beast? <laughs> it is a tough thing, though. I mean, I know through my life, I have often used humor just so that I, I mean, because I love it. But also so that I don't have to be emotionally vulnerable to someone, even someone that I actually do love and trust and care about, or at least trust as much as I trust anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is that thing of like, if you talk sincerely... Uh, you could come across like an, an idiot. And if you already intend to sound like an idiot, then you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if part of you not wanting to reveal your real self is that you've got this character that's bulletproof because it's already... The most, you know, you've, you you know what your character is because you've been, I, I'm sure that you've gotten the, you know, the character description for every part you've ever auditioned for. Um, you know, your character is the most intense, screeching, aggravating, annoying guy that's ever existed, you know? <laughs> And if you're all if you're already that, well, then there's nothing bad that anyone can say about you because, yeah, well, that's that's my thing. That's what I do. Oh yeah, it it's uh <clears throat> it it's kind of like game shows I've been on where I really don't know the answer. And uh you know, people at and it doesn't matter cuz people at home going, "Oh, he's so funny. He's acting like he doesn't know the answer to such a simple question." And, um, yeah, so it, it's it's kind of a protective thing, and it's hard dealing with both, to be sincere and then also funny. Do you get satisfaction out of being sincere? Only if, like, I'm one of those people, if I'm sincere and 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 it's successful, like, I feel like it's it's like a good review. I just got. But if you're sincere and it doesn't work. Oh yeah, that that's when it's a problem. It's it's kind of that that double-edged thing. It's like uh you know like you hear a song on the radio uh and you start like you know singing along with it and the other person in the car looks at you and goes, "You like that song?" 
and you go, oh, no, no, no. I was just making fun of what a bad song it was. And it's like then you're protecting yourself by being uh, acting like, oh, no, I was sarcastic. You weren't always uh, a, a dark and brutal truth teller on stage. I, I'm going to play a clip. This is from about 25 years ago. I'm probably doing the same bit now. That's the scary part. <laughs> this is, sorry, this is not even from 25 years ago. This is from 35 years ago, the early 1980s. You, so you are in your late 20s, and you're at the comic, the comic strip in, in New York, and you're talking about maple syrup. I was in Canada recently. It's like another country. It's, uh, it's, it's like getting on a plane and going somewhere else. They, they eat maple syrup there. They, uh, they eat maple syrup. They manufacture maple syrup. It's a maple syrup. You get off the plane, they go, well, long flight. I suppose you'll be wanting your maple syrup now. Uh, would you like your maple syrup in jars or bottles? Or uh, how would you like... funny i just performed a couple of days ago in canada and and the club manager said make sure to do the maple syrup bit. <laughs> <laughs> so i did it <laughs> but it's funny because it feels like there is in a weird way this there is there is this there is a string that ties together your most clean observational humor with your most insane and and vulgar and profane material. Oh yeah, it's the same. I don't know, same self destructive person. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Gilbert, I am so grateful to you for taking all this time to come be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you and meet you, and I so admire your work. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Gilbert Gottfried, folks. If you haven't seen Gilbert, the documentary about him, you can stream it or rent it just about anywhere online these days. Go watch it if you want to see Gilbert being a sweet and very unusual family man. If you want to see him be vulgar, which he basically did better than anyone else ever, I mean, you could do a lot worse than watching his scene from The Aristocrats, which, uh, you know, you can either rent the movie or or just watch it on YouTube or whatever. It is truly the most filthy thing that anyone has ever recorded to tape. It's really extraordinary. He was a special guy. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. The other day I was going to have a birthday party, so 
I rented a bounce house uh, for my kids and their friends who were going to be around. And uh, then <laughs> my youngest got sick, uh, just a cold, but a bad cold. So we had to cancel the party, but they still delivered the bounce house. So it just sort of was our personal bounce house for a day. Uh, it was weird, but fun. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio, Valerie Moffat, and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. Welcome on board, Tabitha. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is Huddle Formation, written and recorded by the great band The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for letting us use that song. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us there. Give us a follow. We will share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.